0: Episode 15, The Road to Moscow The room is dim. Heavy wooden slats cover the windows. A few small lamps illuminate the charts and maps spread out on a massive oak table. In the room are three men. Stalin, Premier of the Soviet Union. Zhukov, Chief of the Red Army General Staff. And Meklis, the grim and largely incompetent Deputy People's Commissar of Defense. There's an argument going on. Zhukov is pointing to a map, reeling off figures about Soviet losses. Stalin is shaking his head, scowling in disagreement. Zhukov is arguing for a reinforcement of the Central Front. Stalin is concerned that doing so will strip Moscow of its defenses. Zhukov counters that divisions can be brought from the East, and that Moscow defenses will be strengthened by having the Southwestern Front fall back behind the Dnieper, For a moment, all go silent. Then Stalin asks, what would that mean for Kiev? Zhukov answers, and Stalin explodes into a stream of profanity and curses. He calls him incompetent and a coward. Zhukov responds by saying, if you think the chief of the general staff talks nonsense, then I request you relieve me of my post and send me to the front. And right then and there, Stalin does so. Why? Because Zukov had the temerity to utter the words, Kiev must be abandoned. Welcome to The Finest Half Hour, read by Richard Cutland, written by Jim Jager, and brought to you with the generous support of Wargaming. Last time we talked about the tragedy of Leningrad. This week, we're going to shift our focus south to Ukraine. We touched on the southern part of the front in the Barbarossa episode. But today we're going to go into more detail, because some of the decisions made in those opening months, the decisions made on the road to Moscow, will forever alter the war. Because it's here, in the very opening of the Eastern Campaign, that the great strategic questions of the war will rear their heads. What was the goal of the German invasion of the Soviet Union? What, if anything, could cause the Soviets to admit defeat? And it's here these questions will be decided. Hindsight is twenty-twenty, but to the people on the ground, the generals, the political leaders, the captains of industry, there were many different answers to these questions. And those differing views will begin to tear the once unbeatable German war machine apart. Late June 1941, outside of Minsk. They race forward, great tracks tearing at the earth. He could hear nothing except the roar of the engine. They had no radios, half the time he communicated with their driver by kicking him on the shoulder to tell him which way to turn. But now they charged straight ahead, a fleet of steel to turn back the barbaric invaders. All around him were tanks painted with the Soviet star, hundreds of them, the embodiment of communist industrial might. They were ready for the Germans, they would hurl them back into their Reich or die bravely for the motherland. A tank explodes, shards of tortured metal ripping through the air. He ducks, then sees another tank erupt. Overhead are the vultures, the condors, the planes of the fascists. One swings low, cannons tearing through the tank next to him. They press on. But the vultures circle, one dives, and another tank disappears in a cloud of oily smoke. It circles, it's on them. He slams down the cupola hatch. Cannon fire rings off their armour. He peers out for a moment. The plane is circling for another pass. Shells ricochet off the side of their tank. Then there's a horrible moan, like a dying beast, and the tank goes dead. The thin armour above their engine has been shredded. The engine has been riddled with holes. Smoke is pouring into the cabin. Out, 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 he screams at his men. They scramble out the top of the tank, falling, sliding, leaping over its side. They begin to run. Then, they hear the propellers of the German plane coming back around. As the shock of Barbarossa echoed through the Soviet Union, Army Group Centre charged towards its first objective, Minsk. Minsk was a key railway hub on the way to Moscow. If they could capture it, the path to the Soviet capital would lay open before them. But in their way stood almost 600,000 Soviet troops, equipped with thousands of tanks and an enormous complement of artillery. Unfortunately for the Soviets, they faced a geographical disaster. When the Third Reich and the Soviet Union carved up Poland, the demarcation line had a bulge in it, so the troops in the Soviet Western Front, at the outbreak of the war, already had their flanks exposed. They were vulnerable from the north and the south. Under normal circumstances this might have been manageable but the state of the Red Army at the outbreak of Barbarossa was anything but normal. Before the Stalinist purge of the army some strategic doctrine was established around defence in depth. The idea was that the army would trade ground for time. It would fall back until the enemy's supply lines were stretched. Their communication slowed and the Soviet troops could find a good defensive position to fight from. And that's what should have happened here. The Soviet Western Front should have fallen back until it could create a unified front with the armies behind it. But after the purge, ideas of retreat got thrown out of the window. They were seen as defeatist and un-Soviet. Instead, a doctrine of headlong attack was developed. The armies on the front would charge forward in case of an invasion to take the war to German soil. But this, of course, was totally unrealistic. Barbarossa had come as a complete surprise. The Soviet air force was in ruins. Confusion ran rampant at every level of command, and the army was already in an exposed position without pushing deeper into German lines. Nonetheless, the attack was ordered. Stalin demanded it. Immediately, things started to break down. Stalin's orders were confusing, demanding that Soviet forces attack but also telling them not to cross the German border in case Barbarossa was all some great misunderstanding. Soviet armour, the one area where they held an advantage, was completely neutralised by relentless Luftwaffe dive-bombing. And, of course, Wehrmacht forces did the obvious thing and went straight for their flanks. German troops pushed hard to the north and the south, cutting off the western front. On the 25th of June, a mere three days after Barbarossa began, High Command acknowledged reality and a withdrawal was ordered. But by this point, it was already too late. Communication had broken down and vital fuel supplies couldn't make it to the front, so any attempt at retreat had to be done on foot. Within 18 days, The Wehrmacht had succeeded in completely closing the trap. The Western Front was encircled. Army after army surrendered. 400,000 Soviet soldiers had been lost. The Wehrmacht recorded barely over 12,000 casualties. The Western Army as a fighting force had functionally ceased to exist. Its men, imprisoned, were sent back to Germany to serve as slave labour. Its commanders... Summoned back to Moscow were shot as traitors and their families imprisoned. The centre of the Soviet line looked on the verge of collapse. But this very success prompted Hitler to issue Directive 33, the order many of his generals later claimed was the single most disastrous decision of the war. July-August to 1941 Smolensk Blackened and charred buildings still smoke in the early morning light. Once, there had been a village here. Now, nothing is left but burnt-out husks. The smell of wood fire pervades the area as they tramp through. Not a single person, not a single living soul is to be seen. Just some crows picking through the wreckage. Then a sound comes, a thumping, muffled shouts. The old stone church at the end of the town. The soldiers break out into a run. A great chain holds the church doors closed. People are pounding on them from the inside. One of the Red Army soldiers pulls out his rifle and shoots the lock. Other soldiers heave the chain off. Ragged, soot covered people pour out, blinking in the morning light. They're alive, but their whole lives have been destroyed. There's not a youthful face among them. Anyone old enough to work has been rounded up and dragged off for forced labour by the retreating Germans. Only the elderly, the infirm and the very young are left. Their homes are gone, their livestock taken, their crops reduced to a fine layer of ash. Not many would survive the winter, but there was little the soldiers could do for them. They had orders to press on. As the Wehrmacht pushed past Minsk, they were met with the first concerted Soviet counterattack. Wave after wave of tanks rushed their positions, charging headlong into German anti-tank guns. It was a disaster. The Soviet army fell back to the area around Smolensk, the great civic centre west of Moscow. Competent commanders were called up and vast reserves were pushed to the front. Nearly three-quarters of a million men would defend Smolensk. Guderian's panzer group moved faster than the Soviets expected, forcing a bridgehead to the south and pushing past the city. Meanwhile, another panzer group began rolling back the defenders in the north. Slowly, the city was becoming more and more isolated. Then, Führer Directive 33 came. Both panzer groups were to stop the offensive immediately. One was to head north to help the drive on Leningrad, and the other, Guderian's, was to swing south to Ukraine. Guderian was furious. He expected to cut off Smolensk and drive straight on to Moscow. The ultimate prize, the Soviet capital, could be theirs within weeks. The high command as a whole was, in turns, baffled, enraged and horrified. The consensus from the generals was that Moscow ought to be their primary target? Besides being the capital and having incalculable symbolic value, Russia's entire transportation network was built around Moscow. It was the hub that everything flowed into and out of. You cut off Moscow and you cut off the rest of the country. Even more important to the German High Command, though, was the opportunity to definitively defeat the Red Army before it could have time to re equip, resupply, and draw upon the vast reserves of Russian manpower to make up for its early losses. Wehrmacht Doctrine said that you destroy a country's military capacity first, and then worry about completing your occupation. But Hitler had other views on how to topple the Soviet colossus. He called his generals idiots, who had no understanding of economics, and told them that the Soviet Union must be bled dry by cutting off its production capacity then its army could be destroyed piecemeal at their leisure. With this in mind, he had his eye on the vast farmland of Ukraine, the industrial centres in the Donbass region, and, of course, the Caucasus oil fields. But if these were the objectives, it meant turning south, diverting resources away from army group centre and the thrust on Moscow. When his generals objected, Hitler told them he didn't care about Moscow that taking Moscow wasn't important because that wasn't where the war was going to be won. Guderian flew off to see Hitler, to lay out the army's case, but he came back a few days later, defeated, saying the decision was final. This sowed a seed of distrust between the high command and Hitler that would grow deep in the frozen soil of Russia. And it divided the army, with those who were blindly loyal to Hitler distrusting those that openly opposed the diversion to the south. But the order was obeyed, and the panzers headed to Ukraine as the infantry slogged forward. Slowly they closed the circle around Smolensk. But for the first time, Soviet counterattacks pushed German forces back. Not far, not for long, but they did delay the already crawling army. It was no longer the lightning war the high command always wanted. Eventually, the Wehrmacht would encircle Smolensk. Another 300,000 Soviet soldiers would fall into German hands. But this time it would cost the Germans over 100,000 casualties, losses they could ill afford. Because, in the most callous of terms, each German soldier taken out of action was a far bigger investment for the Reich than their counterparts were for the Soviet Union. Each soldier lost reduced Germany's war-making potential far more than it did the USSR's. For not only were the German reserves smaller, but they were stretched between the war in the east, the war in North Africa, the occupation of conquered territory and the defence of the French coast against the possible invasion. Moreover, the tragic truth is that the Soviets were throwing barely armed, barely trained men at the Wehrmacht, while the Wehrmacht was losing irreplaceable veterans outfitted with the latest in modern arms. Smolensk was a great victory for the Germans, but without their panzers it cost them time and fighting strength they'd sorely need in the future. August to September 1941, the Kiev pocket. Late at night, in the concrete compound of the OKH, a man sits hunched over a desk, writing in his diary. It's the only place he can express how he feels the war is really going. The man is Franz Halder, the Chief of Staff of the German High Command. The date is August the 11th. And these are the words he is consigning to the pages. It is increasingly clear that we underestimated the Russian Colossus. We believed that the enemy had about 200 divisions, now we are counting 360. These forces are not always well armed and equipped, and they are often poorly led, but they are there. The conquest of Russia does not look as easy as once thought. With the diversion of the two panzer groups from Army Group Centre, the advance towards Moscow came to a halt. The German High Command warned Hitler that time was running out to press the offensive on the capital before the winter set in, and continued to insist that Army Group South could achieve their objectives without stripping vital troops from the centre. But Hitler was adamant. Moscow was not the objective. The closest to compromise he was willing to come was to say that the advance on Moscow could continue once Kiev had been taken. So Guderian's panzers headed south. Over the previous month, Wehrmacht Army Group South had beaten back a number of ill-coordinated attacks by the Red Army, and forced their way deep into the Ukraine. Soviet losses were enormous, often suffering casualties at a rate of 10 to 1. But there was still strength in the Soviet bear. Around Kiev, nearly 700,000 Red Army troops were assembled. Stalin ordered them to hold to the last. Kiev would not be surrendered, would not be abandoned, but this order left them stranded. As army Group south pushed east and Kadarian's panzers came in from the north, Kiev became a pocket, only tenuously connected to the unconquered stretches of Ukraine. Then the rain came. By September the roads were a morass. Flights were grounded. Air cover, reconnaissance, non-existent. Infantry had to chop down forests and lay tree trunks along the roads just so supply trucks could get through. Peasants' carts were seized to haul supplies. Horses became a faster mode of transport than motorcycles in many places. The German advance slowed, became disjointed. The wings of the encirclement closed at different rates. The Soviet troops could still escape. The first Secretary of Ukraine, when Nikita Khrushchev, begged Stalin to let them abandon Kiev. Finally, on the 18th of September, The order to withdraw was given, four days after the Germans' encirclement was complete. Soviet troops fought hard, often fighting until the last bullet and the last shell, but it was too late. They were trapped. Hundreds of thousands more Red Army soldiers fell into German hands. Hitler called it the greatest victory in history. He told his generals that the Soviets were on the verge of collapse. But on the other side of the wall, things looked different. The time spent on Kiev had bought the Soviets precious weeks. Their industry was being rebuilt in the east. Fresh troops were being called up, and the winter was drawing closer. As one Bulgarian diplomat famously said, if the Russians had to retreat past the Urals, they would still win. Meanwhile, the Nazis continued to show their contempt for the Slavic peoples. In the first few months of the invasion, the Wehrmacht had already captured over a million Red Army soldiers, but, while more than a million prisoners of war were fed and housed during the fall of France, the Third Reich only built camps for 790,000 Soviet prisoners. Red Army prisoners were intentionally starved, or simply shot, because they were inconvenient. Many were worked to death as quickly as possible to free up room for new labour. Conditions in the camps were horrific. With hundreds of thousands dying of disease, and in some camps, food was denied to the prisoners for so long that cannibalism was reported. But captive soldiers weren't the only ones to suffer. Behind the army came the Einsatzgruppen, the Death Squads. When we discussed the Holocaust, we're we'll taught more about the horror that these bands brought. But, in coordination with the army and supported by the army, They killed, tortured and maimed all across Ukraine. The Ukrainian people, like many of the Slavic peoples, at first saw the Nazis as potential liberators. They had suffered heavily under Soviet domination. They'd lost their wealth and suffered famine during the forced collectivization of their farms. They'd lived through Stalin's purges and the murder of their intelligentsia, They'd starved when communist economics placed higher value on rapid industrialization and state control than on seeing everyone fed. And, in a final indignity, they had their religion suppressed so they could not even turn to the comfort of the church. But it rapidly became clear to all the Slavic peoples, Ukrainians included, that the Nazis were worse. They would strip a village to the bone leaving nothing for the villagers to get through the winter. They would enslave the young men and send them back to Germany, and if anyone resisted they'd be shot and often their family would be hung or their whole village burned to the ground, to set an example. Soon soldiers who eluded capture and civilians who had everything taken away from them by the Nazi horde started forming partisan bands all across Eastern Europe to strike back at the Third Reich. From the forests and the hills, the bogs and the marshes, they would present a constant threat to German supply. They often suffered horrendously for it, as did the civilian population around them. But with every foot of territory the Nazis conquered, they left more enemies behind. Hitler was right about one thing, though. By sheer numbers, the collapse of the Kiev pocket was the greatest encirclement in history. But would the Nazis' greatest tactical success be their biggest strategic mistake? The road to Moscow. Twenty men curse and sweat, hauling on ropes, pulling, trying to drag the very machine that was supposed to be carrying them. Their truck is bumper deep in the soupy mire that a few weeks back they would have called a road. Snowmelt and persistent rain have left it a bog, left them hauling their transports rather than the other way around. Morale was starting to break down. They were sick of it, sick of the constant raids, the harassment by partisans or just Soviet soldiers who didn't know that they were beaten. How many times have they cut off and encircled whole divisions just to find stragglers who would suicidally fight on? ...attacking them days or weeks after they thought the action was done. Then they heard it. The noise they'd all grown to fear. The spluttering exhaust of a T-34. Its wider tracks allowed it to move more easily without sinking into the mud. They all threw themselves into the muck. Then they heard another noise they knew well. The scream of a Stuka falling on its prey. And they all counted themselves lucky. They'd all be dead, but it wasn't raining today. With the Kiev pocket closed, it was at last time for the panzer groups to turn around and head back north to rejoin Army Group Centre. But, despite their remarkable success, the diversion to Ukraine had cost them greatly. They paid for that success in lives, in equipment, and, most importantly, in time. Because when most of us think of the weather in the USSR, and how it affects war, we think about General Winter, the frigid, biting cold that makes hands freeze to weapons and toes snap off in boots. But Russia has a second unique weather effect, less famous, but nearly as disastrous for invading armies. The Rasputitsa, the season of mud. It stopped the Mongols, it stopped Napoleon, and now perhaps it would stop Hitler too. For by the time the panzers returned to Army Group Centre and the advance on Moscow finally began again in earnest, the Rasputitsa had set in. What had happened in Ukraine was just a small foretaste. Men sunk waist-deep into what once had been roads. Horses could barely move. Tanks spun their tracks, spitting up mud. Guderian made one last brilliant thrust taking the Soviets by surprise with his return from the south. But even his armoured corps started to get bogged down. The rough terrain and the vast distances had taken its toll on his machines. Tank losses from breakdowns were mounting every day, and getting the supplies to fix them was nearly impossible in the sea of mud. To make matters worse, Russian rail tracks were a different gauge than those in the rest of Europe so Wehrmacht engineers had to rip up the rail lines and lay new ones down, just so the Germans could use their trains to supply the army. Infantry, already exhausted by constant fighting, were drained by weeks of slogging through the mud and the rain. All across the line, combat strength was on the ebb. And as the approach to Moscow, which you've done in the fading days of summer, might have been made in a dozen days, stretched out into weeks, the days grew colder and the nights grew longer. The famous Russian winter was almost here. So join us next week as the struggle for survival between the greatest military powers of Europe plays out on Moscow's doorstep.